Lord, it's a pleasure to welcome Dr. Furtado back to the pulpit. Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Psalms, Psalm 130. Let's give careful attention to the public reading of God's word as it's found in Psalm 130, a song of ascents. Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, so that we can with reverence serve you. I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits, and in his word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning, more than watchmen wait for the morning. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. May the Lord bless the reading and preaching of his word to each of our hearts this morning. Let's pray. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us by your word, which is truth, and who has called us to engage in the study of that word. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would sweeten this word in our hearts and in our minds and in our wills, that together we might grow in our knowledge of you and ourselves and the world that you have made, that we might more enjoy the calling that you have given to us, and that we might honor you more along the path of life, praying in the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Be seated, please. Well, we have come uh, to our last song of ascent for this um, fall series. I'd have to double-check, but I think there are probably three more songs of ascent that I've never preached on at one time uh, or another, and uh, maybe, perhaps... In the spring, we'll look at a couple of those. Although in January, I'm contemplating uh, doing a short series on the Ten Words. Uh, You know them as the Ten Commandments, but the Hebrew Bible calls them the Ten Words. And it probably wouldn't be a traditional sermon series marching our way through. I'd probably do something a little bit different than that. But uh, pray for me as I think about that. I'm going to be here a couple of times in uh, uh, January and then uh, February, and I might do something on the Ten Commandments for us uh, then. But Psalm 130, the last of our songs of ascent. Remember, 120 through 134 are a group of songs of ascent. They were pilgrimage psalms. Uh, Ancient Israelites had three big Christmases, so to speak. They had three big annual festivals. And for each one of these, all the males were required to make pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And for those pilgrimages, there was a group of songs collected in a small little song book. And that's 120 to 134. And uh, we've been looking at those psalms as prayers for our journey from wherever we are to where we're going, and our destiny is the uh, heavenly Jerusalem. We're not heading to an earthly Jerusalem, but to the real Jerusalem, uh, the one that Christ has already entered into for us. And along our journey in life, we have ups and we have downs, and these psalms have given us a lot of different insights into how to pray 
uh, on the path of life. This morning we're going to look at Psalm 130, which I call a prayer for redemption. And why use that word redemption as a lead idea in this prayer? Well, it's because of where the prayer ends. In the last uh, two verses, Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love. With him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. Uh, As this psalm is making its own journey from the beginning of the psalm to the end of the psalm, where does it arrive? It arrives at this repetition of the idea of redemption. And so everything leading up to these last two verses are leading to our experiencing what the psalmist calls full redemption. And so we're going to be looking at this psalm this morning. And uh, I have four points. That's kind of odd. I I like twos. Um, I I tend to work in twos. Um, I I don't know much at all about the innards of computers, but I know computers like twos. They're like uh, yes and no, on and off, one and two. It's just all binary. And I tend to uh, like twos. I like threes also. After all, I'm a Trinitarian, so I like threes. I don't usually have sermons with four points. It's just odd. Um, But the psalm has four sections. So what am I going to do? You'll notice if you're looking in a a newer translation like the NIV or the ESV, you're probably seeing some extra white space. And that extra white space is going to be found, for example, after verse 2. And it's going to be found after verse 4. And it's going to be found after verse 6. In other words, that extra white space is the modern editor telling you that there are four strophes or paragraphs in this poem. And they indicate that with that little break in the in between the verses. And you'll notice that all of these uh, little sections are made up of two lines. And we call those couplets. Most of the time, a poetic line is made up. See, it's binary. Most of, those, most of the time, a Hebrew poetic line is made up of two halves. Uh, but sometimes... Two lines go closely together, and now we call that a couplet. So this uh, psalm is made up of four couplets, and so we're going to look at each one of those as they give us insight into praying for redemption on the path of life. Now, where do we begin? We begin in the first two verses, crying for help. I wish this weren't the case. I really do, in, in one way. I wish the, the path from where we are to where we were going were always smooth. I wish that path was always straight. I wish it didn't have any difficulties, any disappointments, any discouragement, any darkness in it. Um, I wish that were the case, but it's not. The path of life is not always a pleasant one. Uh, I tend to be very positive in my approach to life. I tend to be uh, very positive in my theology. Uh, And the reality is we face negativity in, in a variety of ways. And, of course, you don't have to watch the news for more than about 35 seconds to be confronted with the dark side of life. Uh, and so we, we begin this prayer for redemption with a cry for help. After all, there wouldn't be a prayer for redemption if we didn't need some help. 
If there was nothing from which to be redeemed, we wouldn't have a prayer for redemption. So let's start by looking at this cry for help in verses 1 and 2. And just two things here. I I told you I like twos. We cry from the depths. Out of the depths I cry. Now this, this depths in Hebrew, it refers in particular to watery depths. Let's just look at two examples. Go over to Psalm 69 and verse 2. Psalm 69, verse 2. Notice the psalmist says, I sink in the miry depths where there is no foothold. I have come into the deep waters. The floods engulf me. Or go over again to verse 14 in this same psalm. Rescue me from the mire, do not let me sink. Deliver me from those who hate me, from the deep waters. Go back to Genesis 1-2. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. Different word, but same concept. We start there in Genesis 1-2 with a life where neither you nor I can experience the blessedness, the abundance that God originally intended in creation. Uh, And so the Bible throughout will use water and darkness as symbols of, of of the destruction, of the death, uh, of the negativity that we experience in this life. That's why at the very end of the story in the book of Revelation, John says there was no longer any sea, S-E-A. And we don't need a sun and a moon because the Lord uh, is the lamp and the light. It's all light. It's all dry land, so to speak. Uh, we, but, but along the way, we experience the watery depths. Notice in verse 14 of Psalm 69, deliver me from those who hate me from the deep waters. See, those who hate me are part of the negativity of this life. We experience hostility and opposition along the way, but the Bible calls that the watery depths. So you don't have to literally be like at the bottom of the ocean in order to be in the watery depths. Watery depths is a consistent metaphor that the Bible uses. Uh, And as one scholar well puts it, the, the watery depths refer to the chaotic forces that confront human life with destruction, devastation, death. Whatever is the opposite of life, those are the watery depths. Whatever you're experiencing, uh, to one degree or another, that, that diminishes the fullness of life that God intended in creation. Those are the watery depths. Uh, and sometimes in life, we're just like ankle deep. And it's more of, a, of, of an annoyance than anything. Uh, but sometimes we feel like we're in over our heads. As the psalmist said earlier, we're totally engulfed. It's kind of like my, my left knee. My left knee, I, I have, I, I experience my left knee in three ways. Discomfort, that's a good day. But on a good day, that knee is, I mean, it, it's uncomfortable. 
Uh, and then sometimes it's a little bit more than, than just uncomfortable. Sometimes I would call it an ache. Can I get a witness here? <laughs> Does anybody know what I'm talking about? It's like, and maybe it's not in your knee, but, but, it, but it, it's not just discomfort, it's just aching. And then sometimes, I mean, it is really like get out the ibuprofen, painful. And I don't know exactly why. It's just, I had surgery when I was a kid. I developed arthritis because of the surgery. I've had another surgery. And uh, it's, just, it's just part of my path. Uh, it, it can either just be a little bit uncomfortable or it can be achy or it can be really, really painful. Those are the watery depths in one way or another. We all know those experiences, don't we? Sometimes it's just, it's just I mean, we wish it weren't there, but in all, in all reality, it's just a little bit uncomfortable. Sometimes it, it's kind of achy, but sometimes it's really, really painful. That's part of what it is to walk this path from where we are to where we're going. We cry from the depths, and we cry for mercy. Okay, teach a little bit of Hebrew. Everybody say, and this is a long, Hebrew words tend to be pretty short. This is a long one. Tachanunim. And you got to get the cha. Tachanunim. That's pretty good. And remember, Hebrew accents on the last syllable most of the time. Tachanunim. Now, it's a plural word, but it's, a, it's only referring to a, a singular concept. And you'll probably notice that there's not a single word for it in your translation. Your translation is going to use a number of words, something like plea for mercy, cry for mercy. Uh, that's this tachanunim. It's a plea. Uh, it, as, we, as we sang in one of our hymns this morning, it's a begging. It's a pleading with God. But it's a pleading with God for chain. Can you hear that tachan, that second syllable, chan? A tachanunim is a plea for chain. And in Hebrew, chain uh, is an act. We're asking God to do something. But it's an act that displays someone's compassion for another. Mercy, you see, mercy is asking God for mercy, as we did in, in one of our songs. Asking God for mercy is asking God to act. But it's also asking God to act out of deep compassion for us. Why? Because we are in the depths. One of the most... Um, one of the most beautiful passages, in my estimation, in the Old Testament comes out of the book of Exodus. Uh, let's look at that for just a moment. It's Exodus chapter 3 and verse 7. It's after the new Pharaoh arose who didn't know Joseph. And the Egyptians are oppressing the Israelites. And the more they get oppressed, the more they, uh, the more they expand. And the more they expand, the harsher the oppression is that they're experiencing. And then comes this beautiful verse 7 when God meets with Moses in the burning bush. And the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt, and I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. And I am concerned about their suffering. 
So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, the land flowing with milk and honey. Now, I think if we were to ask the kind of average Reformed and Presbyterian type, you know, why did God deliver Israel from the Egyptians? The natural answer would be, God delivered Israel from the Egyptians for the glory of his name. What is our chief end? To glorify God. And that is certainly true. And there's another side to that coin. This text does not say, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt, and I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I see a wonderful opportunity to glorify my name. That is true, but that's not what the text says. The text says, and I am concerned about their suffering, and I'm going to come down to do something about it. What a beautiful text. It reminds me of Jesus. When Jesus comes to the tomb of Lazarus and Jesus weeps, He's not weeping for joy because he has a wonderful opportunity to display the glory of God, which he certainly does. He weeps in anguish because his friend has died. He knows what it means to walk through those watery depths. And so we have this beautiful prayer. It's a prayer of, it's a cry for help from the depths for the mercy of God. For God to see us in our misery, whatever that misery might look like. And to be concerned about us, like any good parent would be. And to act on our behalf. Now the English word mercy is is a good word. Among other meanings, it can mean the discretionary power of a judge to pardon someone. A pardoning presumes like that you've done something wrong. That leads us right to our second point. You see, those next two verses continue our prayer for redemption by asking for forgiveness. Now, it is not always the case that the misery that we're in is our fault. Who sinned, this man or some or his parents, that he was born this way? Jesus said, I got a third option for you that you haven't considered. This one in particular has happened that I might display the glory of God. It's not his fault. It's not their fault. There's a mystery going on here. But folks... Misery is not always mysterious. Sometimes it's just our fault. We have done wrong things, we have made bad decisions, and we're experiencing the consequences of what we've done. We're reaping what we have sown. And so, along the way, as we're praying for, for redemption, part of that is praying for forgiveness. This verse, just this section just divides into two again. And the first is if. Uh, Notice the psalmist says, if, this is just an if-then. If you kept a record of sins. Now, in one sense, God does keep a record of sins, right? How could he not? God knows everything. 
Everything is recorded in the book. God does keep a record of sins. But there must be some other sense in which God doesn't keep a record of sins because the psalmist said, if you kept a record of sins, that presumably he doesn't. Here, the keeping of the record of sin doesn't mean that God doesn't know it. It means God's not going to hold you accountable for it. Keeping a record, in this sense, means holding you accountable. Uh, You might have heard in a movie or read in a book, ah, he keeps a record. What's that mean? That means you're going to eventually get it because he's going to eventually hold you accountable. That's the sense here. God doesn't keep a record of sin, meaning that although he knows it, he doesn't hold us accountable. Because if he did hold us accountable for everything in our record, then the question is, who could stand? Psalm 1 verse 5 says, therefore the wicked cannot stand in the judgment. Psalm 5, 5 says the same thing. Those who are against God cannot stand in his presence. If God were to hold us accountable for everything in our record book, none of us would make it through the judgment process. None of us could stand. Then there's that wonderful word, but. It's going to negate what we've just said. But. With you is forgiveness, you see. If, if you held us accountable, we couldn't stand, but with you is forgiveness. God can wipe the slate clean. Somebody commits a felony. They can not only be forgiven for that, but through our judicial process, they can have their record What's the word? They can have their record expunged. And so when you go to look them up, there is no longer any record to be found. Now, I know that somebody has the ability to go deep enough into the belly to find out anything that's ever happened in the past. But for the average folk who look into that record, it's been expunged. It's not there anymore. That's forgiveness. That's what God does for us when we come to faith in Christ and we trust in him for our forgiveness. He's faithful and he's just and he just wipes the slate clean. Our Our entire record has been expunged. Why? The text says that you might be feared. See, the, as you experience God's forgiveness... It, it's, it's designed by God to be a growing process. The more you experience the forgiveness of God, the more you fear God. Now that sounds a little bit strange, doesn't it? Because you'd think it's like the more you experience his punishment, the more you'd be afraid of him. But here the fear of God is not being afraid of him. Here the sense of fearing God is three. To fear God is to know him. To fear God is to stand in awe of him, which is why the NIV says, with reverence. And to fear God is to grow in obeying him. So fearing the Lord, the fear of the Lord is not being afraid of him. It's knowing him, 
It's standing in awe of him with faith and it's growing in our obedience. Remember the story about the woman who was caught in adultery. And Jesus said, whoever is free from sin, go ahead, throw the first stone. And one by one, they all walked away. And then Jesus says, if they don't condemn you, I don't condemn you either. In either words, your record has been expunged. And now go and sin no more. You see, the forgi- that, that Jesus wasn't creating a new theological idea. He had read Psalm 130. Forgiveness. Forgiveness producing the fruit of repentance, go and sin no more. That you might be feared that through experiencing forgiveness along the way, you might know me just a little bit better. Your awe for me might increase just a little bit more. Your faith in me might deepen some. And your resolve to walk in my ways might grow. Beautiful. Asking for forgiveness. And you know, you can be forgiven in an instant, just like that. However, even though we can be forgiven in an instant, that doesn't mean that the consequences of what we have done are gone in an instant. Again, somebody commits a felony. They can be forgiven. They still go to jail. There are consequences. And that's the way it's designed in God's world. There are consequences for all the things that we do. And while forgiveness can come immediately, redemption doesn't all, full redemption doesn't always come immediately. Because there's more to redemption than having our sins forgiven. There's also the misery that still plays out in our lives and the lives of other people because of what has happened. And that's why we have to have that next two-verse section uh, waiting for the Lord. I wait for the Lord, says the psalmist. What's he waiting for? He's been forgiven. Yes, he's been forgiven, but he's still experiencing in one way or another the consequences of his sin. And so he needs to wait for a while, sometimes longer, sometimes shorter, but he needs to wait for a while to experience relief, relief from from all of the consequences, from the misery that has spun out. He's waiting for the Lord. Look in your your, uh, Bible at verse 5 there, and you're going to see Lord printed two different ways, aren't you? Uh, the first time it's going to be printed with small caps, and the second time it's going to be printed with a capital L and then lowercase letters. And that's because there's two different things going on in the Hebrew text underlying. What's underlying the small caps is the Lord's personal name. Um, and we, we, we could bring that into English as I am. Remember Moses at the burning bush, tell him I am has sent you. Jesus all in John, all those, I am the bread. All those I am statements. But it's God's personal covenantal name. God's closeness with us. And so the psalmist is waiting. Uh, In Genesis 1, it's Elohim, God, who's creating the heavens and earth. Uh, in, In Genesis 2, it's the Lord 
who is walking in the garden, close to his people. And so the psalmist has this sense of his closeness with God. Sure, he has sinned. Sure, he has violated God's covenant. Uh, But he's been forgiven. He's close to God. Uh, And yet, in this closeness, there are still these consequences that are all around him. But he comes to the Lord, his his close, covenant-keeping God. But the second Lord is a word for master. Uh, He's the one who really is in the superior position. And so which is it? Is it God who is close to us or God who is over us? Uh, It's both of them. Uh, And so he's waiting. He's waiting for his, his covenant God. He's waiting for the Lord, the master of the universe. And he's waiting I'm not quite sure what word to use because the psalm doesn't use a word. It uses a picture. He's waiting. More than a watchman waits for the morning. But he's waiting with even greater intensity than that because he has to repeat it. More than a watchman waits for the morning. Now, I've never been a watchman. I've never worked the graveyard shift. Um, but, but I have, in my younger years, made the mistake of taking that trip for 12 hours and leaving at 10 o'clock at night. That's the closest analogy that I have. By the way, one time, um, we have our families all up in the D.C., Pennsylvania area. And so when we first moved to Florida back in the late 90s, we, we drove up and we made the mistake. It wasn't a mistake. We, um, it was humorous. I said to my wife as we're leaving at 10 o'clock at night, I'll drive the first shift. That wasn't really... Um, a valiant offer. I just thought it's going to be easier to do the first one. She said, fine. And so she falls asleep and we're leaving Maitland and uh, I can drive not a mile further. And I say to her, I pulled over and I said, you got to take over. And she's thinking, oh, that's okay. I've slept for a couple of hours. You know, we're in South Carolina somewhere. And she said, fine, where are we? I said, we're in Daytona Beach. (laughs) That's all the further I could go. You know what that's like, don't you? You know when you're driving in the middle of the night, in the wee hours of the night, and it's all you can do. I mean, your eyes are painfully trying to close. And you just cannot wait for this to be over. You know, it is funny. When the sun comes up, you still haven't slept, but you just feel better, don't you? It's, it's, you're tired, but there's something different once that sun rises. It's something like that that the psalmist is getting at when he says, I'm waiting for you, Lord, to show up to deliver me from the consequences of my sin, to deliver the people around me whom I have hurt along the way. I'm waiting, Lord, more than watchmen, more than watchmen wait for the morning. No, more, more than watchmen wait for the morning. 
Again, I, I wish that the misery would go as soon as the forgiveness comes. But it just doesn't always happen that way. And so this prayer for redemption starts with this cry from the depths for mercy, and it includes asking for forgiveness. It requires us to do the hard thing of waiting, waiting, waiting. And one final thing, this prayer includes encouraging others. Now, as we're in this situation, we are the ones who feel like we need the encouragement, right? We're waiting, we're waiting, we're waiting. Won't somebody come along to encourage me to keep on waiting? But notice how the psalmist shifts. You're not the one receiving the encouraging. You're the one who's giving the encouragement to others. Oh, Israel, put your hope in the Lord. You know, the the beautiful thing is that we, we do not walk this journey of life alone. At least that's not the way God has designed it. And one of the reasons why God has given us the church is so that we don't have to walk through that dark valley alone, but that others would be there along with us to encourage us. But the only way people can be there to encourage us is if they have some encouragement to give, and so we all have to be givers as well as receivers. And so this psalm ends by calling us to encourage the fellow pilgrims who are around us, because trust me, they have their own watery depths as well. A good friend of mine and I have chatted in the past about another friend that we know, and Uh, And I've just said to my friend, and it's kind of become a metaphor, you can't count another man's finances. Right? You never know. You just, appearances on the outside, you just don't know what things really are like. You know, you can't count another person's happiness. You don't really know what's going on deep inside. You just don't know. But I'm pretty sure you can be guaranteed that everybody that's walking with you along this path has some watery depths. Some of them deeper than others. uh, But it's part of life. And so everybody who's walking this path with you needs you. They need you to encourage them along the way. Encourage them with some solid theology, not just with fluff. Notice the psalmist encourages them by reminding them of God's unfailing love. The old hymn, O love that will not let me go. That's the kind of love that God has for you. And sometimes when we're in the watery depths, we can forget that. It, it's, uh, I wear contacts, and sometimes if I get my face wet with contacts and the contacts get wet, you can hardly see anything. It's, it's just all wet and filmy. And that's what the watery depths are like sometimes. We just can't see God clearly. And we need other people. Other people need you to remind them that God has a love for them that will not let them go. You may not be able to explain to them why they're experiencing what they're experiencing. Sometimes the worst thing you can do is to try to do that. 
but you can always hold them and assure them that God has a love for them that will not let you go. And the proof of that is that you're right there to love them along the way as best you possibly can. Encourage them with this unfailing love and notice with this full redemption, the text says. Fullness with him, redemption. Uh, God has a full redemption. He has a redemption that's not partial, but it's full. And that's why the last verse has some promises. He will redeem Israel from all of his, okay, one more Hebrew word, avon. Avon is a word that it can mean sin, We saw it earlier. It can mean the consequences of sin. It can mean the punishment that comes from sin. And sometimes it just means all of that. And we don't have one English word that means all of that. But in the context of this fullness, that's the promise. The promise is that God will redeem you. He'll redeem you not just from the guilt of sin, but also from the punishment that should result from sin and even from all of the misery that comes from sin. You see, God has a full redemption. And now this morning we have a wonderful opportunity to do two things. Uh, To kind of celebrate Christmas and to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Because you see, why did Jesus come? He came to accomplish a full redemption. But to accomplish that full redemption, he had to go himself through the watery depths. That's what the Lord's Supper is a reminder of and a participation in. Jesus went through the watery depths. And let me just say that no matter how deep those watery depths are for you, Jesus went deeper. Because you never experience the full eternal consequences for what you have done wrong. But Jesus did that not only for you, but for all of his people. He went through unimaginable depths on the cross. Experiencing the fullness of sin's misery so that you and I never will have to do that. But Jesus came out on the other side, didn't he? He came out through the resurrection from the dead. And so I can't tell you that that full redemption is this afternoon, but I can guarantee you that it is reality. There is not a single thing left to be done to accomplish your full redemption The only thing you have to do, and I know it's hard sometimes, the only thing you have to do is that W word. You just wait. You wait and see what the Lord is going to do for you. What he did for Israel when he brought them out of Egypt, but he didn't just bring them out of Egypt, did he? He brought them into a land flowing with milk and honey. And God is not just going to bring you out of sin and misery. He's going to bring you into a land flowing with milk and honey multiplied by infinity. That's the promise. Let's pray. 
Father, we bless you for your word, which is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We bless you for the supper, which is food for our souls as we continue walking the path. We give you our thanks in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, your Son and our Savior. Amen.